This podcast is made possible by Focusrite Pro. Beginning with Rupert Neve's ISA 110 preamp and channel strip design in 1985 to today's RedNet audio over IP audio interfaces, Focusrite has consistently stood on the cutting edge of audio production technology. Focusrite Pro represents this commitment to innovation and pristine audio quality with its ISA, RED, and RedNet ranges. Learn more at pro.focusrite.com. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. Composer, musician, and producer James George Thurwell has been known as J.G. Thurwell, Clint Ruin, Frank Want, and most famously, Fetus and its many incarnations. Lately, he has been doing quite a bit of scoring for television, with Archer and the Venture Brothers among his credits. I dropped in at his Brooklyn loft a while back to learn more. Enjoy! So let's start with you. Yeah, okay. Um, what? So you came from Australia, right? Yeah. So what, what were you doing? Were you making music in Australia at that point before um, you moved here? No, I wasn't. No, I moved, I moved to London uh, yeah. in 1978, and that's where I started really making music. Um, yeah. I, when I was a kid in Australia, I learned a couple of instruments and mm-hmm. um, really bad teaching you know practices i mean i learned the first instrument i tried to learn was cello and then some percussion <laughs> and i was re you know the problem was with sight reading which i could i didn't get a handle on before you know i was yeah. learning it and trying to sight read and then their idea was okay he's done it for a couple of months let's put him in the orchestra and you have to fill a seat in the orchestra <laughs> and you're just like you're trying to play and you know you're i, I get keep like up. through halfway through the the first page and i'm lost and then they, you know and i can't catch up and yeah. it's, the whole thing is so humiliating you know? yeah <laughs> and so i stopped doing that and then i started doing percussion but really i would have it would have been better to just give me you know teach me some chords on a guitar or something right <laughs> um, because i loved music and i still love music and uh and um obviously and yeah i think um, so <laughs> um so that that was you know that was you know the end of that chapter of my attempting to play an instrument and then when punk rock came along that democratized the idea of you know that you didn't have to be a virtuoso and that right. everyone could play and you could pick up something and make sound with it and then i bought a bass guitar and i played along to records and <laughs> and um so sort of taught myself that when i moved to london i bought I moved to london i was 18 yeah um I knew that I wanted to be involved with music, and that was, you know, there's so much happening, and it was just an amazing time to be there. Yeah. I was there from 78 to 83. Right. And um, so I moved there, I bought a bass guitar, and then um, I bought my first synthesizer, which was a Wasp. Uh-huh. Um, and not as common over here. They weren't? They're not as common, yeah, they're not as common yeah, in the yeah. States, but like, It was like know. 99 pounds. Yeah, and, they're super yeah. affordable. Yeah, and... Um, <laughs> And I'd, I'd heard about it, and I thought that I want to try, and um, and it had it ran on batteries. It had a built-in speaker, it was, yeah. um, and um, and that was like my on you know 
my entrance to you know making electronic music and then I bought a I had got for somehow I can I got a digital delay as well not a digital delay a delay pedal mm -hmm. um, which was I don't think it was electroharmonics but it looked like an electroharmonics right. thing and it oh, like had, the big silver ones yeah the, big silver yeah. thing with arms yeah. and um, so I had those things and I would just sort of make tapes in my room and um, to cassette or something yeah or? to yeah. cassette and um, and if someone else, if I was, if I had a roommate who had another cassette player, I'd go cassette to cassette. Right. You know? Oh yeah, me um, too. <laughs> yeah. That, and so you know, after one or two generations, that it would get so distorted, but then it would have its own sound. You know? <laughs> right. Um, and I, that was my ideas bank. And um, I think around about that time, I at some somewhere along the way, I got, I also got a Korg MS20, and. Um, so I was making tapes with that, and then um, I was at the time I was I did a lot of squatting in London, and I was also yeah. working for Virgin Records in the retail side of things. Just a record, one of the record stores. Yeah, yeah, yeah. on Oxford Street, on Oxford yeah. Walk, and um, so um, a couple of things happened around that time. One of them was. Um, my roommate, when I was squatting at this time, was this guy Keith Allen, who's a comedian, and yeah, uh, he um, he was saying, you know, you shouldn't, you know, I know you like to make tapes in your bedroom, but you should get out and play with people, and um, and you know, my friends Sue and John are restarting their group, and they had a group called Prague Vec. I don't know if you ever heard that group. No, but they sure. put out a couple of singles, and they yeah. were really good, and I used to go and see them play. P R A G small small uh, lowercase and vec yeah. uppercase okay. um so they were i knew who they were and then he introduced me and so i went to play you know i went over to their place and we started playing a bit and they had a wasp as well and oh cool and uh, they were making things you know making some kind of electronic things and making songs so i went and started to play with them as a result of playing with them i decided i realized that i didn't want to work in a democratic way you know <laughs> it's um, good to find out though right yeah because you need to know if that's conducive or you yeah know. yeah so that was that was one thing but also at the same time then i had my first experience in a recording studio which right. was we we made some tracks which turned into an album not everything you know there was other stuff on the album too that they'd been recording yeah but we recorded i think it was in a 16 track in london and it was engineered by jerry shepherd who was the bass player i think of the glitter band gary glitter oh band. wow <laughs> and uh so that was that was awesome because gary glitter was gary glitter was one of the first groups that i ever went to see and oh, man, yeah and i got um a chance to sort of ask him about the glitter sound and stuff like that you know yeah and, um, I mean, that stuff sounds so layered like you know like the crazy triple drums or yeah, whatever yeah. all those things that are going yeah. on on those records yeah they had two drummers yeah and then he said that they, they would tune all the guitars to um, an open tuning, but just in octaves. Right. Uh, not even, yeah. <laughs> oh, just, my God. And then they play them with slide. And that was, that was uh, how they got the sound. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. You did. That's awesome. <laughs> so that was part of the glitter sound. So that was Man. interesting. And then I got to, you know, be, you know, firsthand, have, have a recording experience. Right. Around the same time, um, you know, working at the record store, I was very interested in experimental music and post-punk and, you yeah. know, and that's where I kind of started to 
to get deeper into contemporary classical, 20th century classical oh, yeah. music and stuff. And, um, and then um, I, that's where I met Steve Stapleton from Nurse with Wound. Do you know that group? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so Steve worked down the street and he came in one day and um, we had the first Nurse with Wound album in stock. And I had listened to it because so I listened to everything that was, you know, left of center. And, <laughs> you know, and he said, he saw it and he said, um, have you heard this album? And I said, yeah. And he, and he said, what's it like? And then I described it and stuff. And he's like, oh, really? Well, it's me. You know, and I said, like, oh, really? So we started chatting and we got to be friendly. And yeah. um, so he, he invited me to, this, to the studio, um, where, which he had locked out on Friday nights. And oh, it was this little eight track studio in Shepherd's Bush called mm -hmm. IPS. Yeah. And he would, um, so he was, he, they'd done the first album, which was with this guy, John Fothergill, who played a lot of guitar on one side of it. Yeah. He was going in a different direction. I don't know what happened to John Fothergill, but mm -hmm. Steve was basically going into the studio every Friday night and doing whatever the hell he wanted. And he didn't, mm -hmm necessarily have an idea of what he would do but he right. would always come out with something and but he didn't go in with he didn't really have they didn't really have any instruments or maybe they had some there were some instruments in the studio but steve didn't need instruments right you know there would be a squeaky chair or there would be <laughs> like he would come in and he'd have some object and he'd say this thing makes a cool sound let's record that you know and process uh, things yeah and and, and I, I know if, if anyone reading this would need to go and listen to a little bit and understand like yeah it's not ambient but it, it's very interesting and dark yeah. and cool and yeah. a lot of the things he does are really creative he had and um, he had also the deepest vastest knowledge of the most obscure music too and he turned me on to so much stuff and I I, bet. on the first album or one of those early albums there's this thing there's this list that he put inside the album and it's called the Nurse With Wound list and people still refer to it now. And you'll see that, you know, distributors saying that we stocked the Nurse With Wound list. Oh my and God. The, and the, on the Nurse With Wound list, there was like a lot of like very obscure, you know, French and Krautrock bands right. and, and stuff like that. Oh um, yeah. And that, you know, he, he sort of turned me on to a lot of stuff. Um, but also his approach you know, really right. broadened my mind. Were you about, going down and watching him work a little bit? Oh, I was collaborating. collaborating yeah. 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 And I would have an idea and, and, you know, we'd make stuff. And then by the time he was through with it, it didn't sound anything like what was, what the source material here yeah. was. You know, he <laughs> yeah. really messed with things. Yeah. Um, and we started making this album, um, later on which was called sylvie and babs which right. was all cover versions and stuff yeah so um so anyway then so then i left um while i was still with spec records which was the ashes of pragvec um yeah. i kind of decided okay i'm not interested in this um dem democracy thing right and so i booked some time at that eight track studio ips where steve yeah. uh, worked and decided i was going to make um, you know, record and mix a single in a day, which I did, which was the first Fia single. Nice. And, um, so I, um, I thought, okay, once I've done that, I'm going to do this one show with 
smoke records and then I'm going to leave. They kicked me out before we could do the show, <laughs> which was like at the ICA opening for Cabaret Voltaire, oh, which I man. wanted to do. So oh, man. Yeah, yeah I got totally. kicked out. Um, uh, but the, the I made the first fetus record and then that, um, that came out on the 1st of January 1981 on yeah. my own label and I was 20 uh, years old. Oh my God. Um, so that was, you know, some of the forces that were yeah. at work um, to, you know, that led me to, to doing Fetus. And so I, I did, the reason I, I yeah. played all the, and I played all the instruments myself because I was so um, heavenly drawn to make the opposite of this democratic experience. Right. I wanted to do something where I could stand and or fall on my own merits even though I don't really consider myself, I mean, I didn't, you know, I couldn't necessarily play the instruments that I was playing. I'd play <laughs> enough to make the overdub and then put yeah. it back in the box and I continued to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But my, the way that I came to music making was I want to work in the studio and I want to make records, you know. Right. Not like I want to play, I want to, play you know be a great bass guitarist or that i want to be a great right. keyboard player or play was, live yeah i was like yeah. i want to make records right you know? and i want to make music that i want to hear and music that maybe you know isn't out there yeah and music that's interesting to me and inspiring to me and and this is my avenue of expression and i want to do whatever the hell i want and so i put it out on my own label how did you figure out how to run a, or start a label even? Well, one one way that I figured figured it out was I worked in a record store. Oh, right. <laughs> and I knew how records were distributed because we right. talked to distributors and and it was the the other thing that when I got there was the the kind of the dawn of independent labels because Rough Trade had been going for about a, releasing stuff for about a year. Yeah, I went to long. Rough Trade every Saturday morning and went and looked at the new releases <laughs> and I started to meet people there. Yeah, and and then there were bands like the Desperate Bicycles and Scritti Politti who were mm -hmm. printing on their Desperate Bicycles would say it was easy and cheap, go and do it. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> on their record. Yeah, yeah. and then Scritti Politti <laughs> on their first single, they they put a um, it was like it was a seven inch instead of a sleeve, it was kind of like a stapled piece of paper, and on the paper they printed um, a breakdown of how much everything cost. And it was like <laughs> how, this is how much it cost to press. This is how much we spent in the studio. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and then late, you know, and, and there were fat fanzines like Sniff and Glue that were mm -hmm. like, you know, here's three chords now, go and form a band. Totally. Um, that was the a lot of the atmosphere there, and that, I knew yeah. so I knew how records were distributed, and um, so I just had to, uh, you know, I looked up a pressing plant, and I called yeah. them up, and I said, hey, "What do you need?" And, <laughs> how and much? so, I, yeah, and I was I had been to art school, so I, you know, I did the sleeves and stuff, and, and <laughs> then um, and then they said, "Well, do you have a publisher for this?" And I said, "No." And then they put me onto Cherry Red, who was right. you know a publishing company, and then I met them, and then. You know, things sort of fell into place yeah. from that. And I really, you know, and I uh, knew where the music papers were. So in my lunch hour, I sort of went to the music papers <laughs> and I gave them out. And I went to the BBC and I put it in John Peel's little box. And, you yeah, know, as you how, do. <laughs> yeah. And that's how, how it kind of worked. And, Did he play uh, it? Yeah, he played the first single. Yeah. That's a nice start. Yeah, great start. You know, it's an honor. It was an honor. 
mm-hmm. you know, to have him notice your music and care and yeah. present it to everybody. Yeah. Well, he, he also used to come down to the record store. Oh, really? Occasionally, yeah, because we had, you know, when I, when I started working at the store, it had more of a disco um, orientation. Yeah, yeah. But uh, <laughs> I worked at the singles counter, and I was, like, pushing more underground stuff. And but there was such a, a plethora of it then, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're, you're getting things showing up, you know, just... I remember, I mean, I was, I'm like two years younger than you, and, mm-hmm. and I'm always just fascinated by the culture in England, the music culture, mm-hmm. and then we'd, you'd find out about all this stuff. Yeah. Amazing. But not only that, we were getting all the imports, too, so right. we had the U.S. imports right. and German imports. Oh, and, man, yeah. And a lot of obscure stuff. Yeah. And so it became the, one of the places where someone would come if they were looking for something yeah. weird. And we had, you know, we had put, you know, a huge wall of all the uh, sleeves and um, yeah. people would come and stare at the wall and say, what's that, what's that, what's that? And I would be pushing my own Could stuff. Could they listen, were there listening booths or anything like we're that? We listening booths, but you know, we would tell them what, about stuff. Yeah. Sometimes, we didn't really, sometimes we'd play stuff for people, but right. you know, we were constantly like playing music to bring people in and then putting on music that would drive people out. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. So. It was um, oh my god, it was good times. You know what yeah. happened after the first single and stuff? How did you proceed with well, recording and the and the fetus band concept? You know, well, the I did I did within the next two years or so, two and a half years, I I released three seven inches and a twelve inch EP and two albums while Jesus. I was while I had a full time job, right? And I was. It was evolving each time, and I would yeah. take the money from one release and put it into the next one. Yeah. So I did the next single, which was You've Got Fetus on Your Breath, Wash It All Off. I did that, and that yeah. really quickly, actually, and it's totally different from the first one. And that's when I started to get a bit more of a handle on my vision, you know, yeah. um, and my voice, literally my voice. <laughs> and that I recorded in a little eight track studio and different eight track studio, which I, I don't know how I found it, probably in the music papers or something. Right. Um, which was underneath a pet shop uh, somewhere in South London. You had to walk through the pet shop and climb <laughs> oh down God. this ladder, and then you were in the studio. Yeah. So it was a little hole in the wall places. That I was found, a, I've been to studios like that. Yeah. Like go through the go through the banjo store or whatever. Or right. The ukulele store. There was one yeah. like that. And you know, yeah. Go downstairs and there's a studio. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't remember that the name of that place, but that I yeah. might may have had the luxury of doing two days there. Yeah. Uh, for recording and mixing. Did you have to? have things pretty well mapped out or were you oh, yeah. kind of being a little more like steve okay so you no, had, i had it i had yeah. systems that i devised yeah um i would um have my own form of notation mm-hmm. um where i would um i'd figure out you know um how many bars of you know intro of the first verse is this many bars mm-hmm. the second you know then there's a break and then this and then this happens and i'd have it all written out and i would First, I'd run a click track, and then I would do a count track where I would say, okay, oh. chorus, blah, 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 one, two, three, four, okay, middle eight, uh, weird section, uh, breakdown, um, things yeah. like, you know, or whatever. And so then when I was recording the overdubs, I could hear when the sections were coming up. Sure. Know, and I didn't have to count. Give it the right feel, too. Yeah, so I wasn't counting. I was, I knew yeah. sections would come up. And then I'd eventually erase that. And then because yeah. I was on eight track. Sure. 
there was a lot of bouncing. So I'd fill up all of the, all of the tracks with, say, percussion, and then we'll yeah. bounce them to one track. And right. then fill, if I wanted, I'd, I'd have to figure out um, the order in which to um, record things. Yeah. So sometimes I'd have to record the per percussion, and then I'd have to record all the backing vocals. Right, whatever had to be layered. In. Yeah, because yeah. if I wanted to, so many of them, I'd be running out of tracks. Absolutely. So I had to figure out the order in which to do oh things. And you also you had to have that one empty track so you weren't bouncing to an adjacent track. Right, the feedback, the weird crosshead feedback, yeah. whatever. Yeah. I've never, I still kind of sometimes don't quite understand why it does that. But it's yeah. because it's recording to one and playing back off the other, but it'll start to squeal. Yeah. It's so nasty. I, would, so I don't know why why that happens we'll, ask a, we'll always, ask a technician but yeah. a sidebar of this article <laughs> yeah i was always told to do that so i would always go in yeah. and i'd say this is what the, the order in which we record things yeah and um and then fill it up like that and yeah. <laughs> um and funnily enough the f on that first single at ips they i guess they had a plate reverb and i'd been listening to records and i I wanted to have a big drum sound, and so I thought the way that you could get a big drum sound is like putting lots of reverb on the drums. Oh yeah. And I recorded a, you know, the drums myself. I can't remember. I might have even played a kit on that. Yeah. But um, but so I put lots of reverb on the drums, and then it just became this big wash, <laughs> and it really put me off reverb. So, um, so it took me years to get back into accepting reverb and so <laughs> as a result a lot of those records are very dry right. sounding and so like that that particular record is probably totally dry but there's real but there's a lot of people think that there were samples on those things or like <laughs> uh, but right. there were it was live drums but i would record the drums one at a time i'd record the hi-hat oh my then, god and then i'd record the kick drum and then i'd record the snare and right and Which then bounce all that stuff it gives you a different feel because you don't have those pauses where you hit another yeah thing or and something you're playing yeah. un totally undrummily you know the way a drummer yeah. couldn't play yeah <laughs> so i would do that and then my other best friend at that time was very speed and oh, yeah. so i would like record things that have speed especially like pianos and stuff and then they'd, they'd be really fast and yeah and um and backing vocals too vocals at all different speeds so i right. had sort of choir it sounded <laughs> like different people and and <laughs> always um, works so those those were some of my tricks, and then um, tape echo. Yeah. So you know those those were the sort of things that I would use in those days. What were the engineers like at these various places early on? They like were when, you all know, pretty open-minded, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they would sit, you know, I'd tell them what I wanted to do, and they'd say, "Yeah, you know, we can do that." And then you know, I'd say, "Well, what happens when we do this?" And you know, they'd yeah. show me and stuff. And, but no one's you know. stubborn or. No. Or making, you know, sometimes there's a stories early on when you just, you're, you're up against someone, they know how to run the thing and you might not. And then you're like, you know? No, I haven't had, I don't think I've ever had that experience. That's and good. So, well, there's been there one, one or two experiences I've had with kind of incompetent people. But, yeah. <laughs> but not, not with, you know, I've, uh, I've always found that um, when I've suggested things, they're more than willing to try them because it's exciting to them to do right. something that they don't normally do, you know. Right. But quickly after, so after that second single, I did a, I, um, 
I made an album and then I did that at this studio in South London called Lavender Sound. And that's where I met this guy, Harlan Coburn, who was the house engineer. Mm -hmm. And I worked with him quite a lot after yeah. that, the same guy. And he was, he was really good for sort of opening, sort of suggesting some things, yeah. um, which I put into my toolkit. And one of those things was, because I was still anti-reverb at that point, yeah. was um, uh, recording ambience. Really so, nice. yeah. yeah. So there was a nice um, stairway there. And I used to put the drums at the bottom of the stairs and we would mic the top of the stairs oh, yeah. and things like that. So that's when I started to get you know, room sounds right. and, and on things, you know, and it was like, like, you know, because, you know, everyone heard, everyone heard flowers of romance and like, you know, said, <laughs> how do you do that? You know? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. It's got that weird. Oh yeah. Echoey. Yeah. Thing. That That's was, funny um, as hell. well, that was Nick Lone. And yeah. that was, um, right. And I think that that was the Virgin townhouse or something like that. Yeah. And they, um, it was oh, just, man. you know, ambient mics. Right, just you know, a lot we, of them. Yeah, a lot of room mics. And oh, stuff. yeah. Yeah. That's a crazy record. Yeah. I'm going to see record. them coming up. PIL's coming through. Yeah, yeah. They just going. played here on um, last Did Monday. you go? No, I saw them the previous time. Well, yeah, I was, yeah the previous time I saw them at Music Hall of Williamsburg. And yeah. It was great, but I didn't feel like... I haven't seen them since 84, so... Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> and Martin was still in the band, I think. Yeah, yeah. Like the time to go again. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of... Yeah, <laughs> you're, yeah. You're due. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's pretty funny. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's... I mean, reverb is... I'm, I'm glad you brought it up, too, mm -hmm. but reverb's a very strange thing. Reverb and then room, room tone ambience are very different things. Mm -hmm. Artificial mm -hmm. reverb, I should say. Yeah. You yeah. know, a plate or a digital device. Or, yeah whatever and it, and it's like when you uh, recording through the 80s you you could not avoid the reverb discussion one way or another yeah how much or how are you going to use it or what kind you're going to use yeah. or what you're going to use it on it was mm -hmm. a very different world yeah well the 80s was about gated reverb too yeah that gated reverb that sort of thing sounds yeah and i definitely used those you know yeah. and i started to lose my um, reverb phobia, but um, <laughs> but I was still using hallways and yeah. and stuff to to record drums. I would always put snares in in hallways and and yeah. um, and bathrooms and stairways and stuff. That you know, um, but um, yeah. So those those were just you know re, uh, you know very speed was a big tool in my arsenal and. Um, and at Lavender Sound, where we did those, you know, I did the first album, and then I ended up doing the second album there, and a 12 inch EP and some other stuff. Um, it was really bare bones what they had. We had yeah. like a tape, you know, a quarter inch for tape delay, which I would, yeah. you know, put straight onto the um, instrument, and so it would be on tape already. Commit it. Yeah, commit tape, it. Yeah. And then there was a, a clap trap. Which oh. was, <laughs> um, so I would use the clap trap, and then there was one um, there was one kind of delay box which had um, you know about five settings on it and one knob, and I can't remember what it was. Um, but that I would use sort of for regeneration and things like that, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, Weird oscillating sounds. Yeah, and, and I think yeah, I can't remember what else we used, but that that was the only piece of outboard there. It was just that, right. and 
they I don't know if they had a plate, but if they did, I didn't use it. Um, yeah. But there was no, there was really no artboard. <laughs> Um, I know it's hard for people to fathom, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it was an eight track. So I was yeah. still doing my, you know, getting oh, increasingly more complex on, um, on my systems when I would come in. And then yeah. I started to do more, you know, work with tape loops. And, um, you know, another one of my tricks was um, I would compile these cassettes of sound effects and various other sounds and manipulated records and things like that. Yeah. And I would have this, you know, variety of things. And then sometimes there'd be a point where I'd say, okay, I want to bring that in. And I would just f find it on the cassette and then just have the pause button and then just spin it in at the right oh, time. Man. You know, yeah. so there's a lot of that type of stuff. Fly flying it in. Yeah, flying it in and then tape tape loops going around the studio and then just like recording them and then doing another one and then filling up the filling up like six tracks and then bouncing them to one but like punching them in and out as they right. went across and then you'd have this one track of that you know and then you do that right. again and submixing kind yeah, of on, sub on the fly yeah submixing on the fly it's weird yeah 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 oh i did that i remember doing stuff like that mm -hmm. in the studio because yeah. you're trying to the first records i did were all eight track mm -hmm. you know and you're just you're trying to figure out how to get all the ideas down, mm -hmm. even for just a simple rock band like I was in. You're still having like be like, you've got to plan ahead and you got to yeah. make makes probably some compromises. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. It's really hard. Yeah, and it seems to there's it's not really an issue anymore. <laughs> you noticed? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man. But that um that yeah. That informed those records, you know. Yeah, it had to because you know you were stuck with that drum ba drum balance kind right. of, you know, and um, <laughs> uh, you were committing to things on the on the as on the way over, and um, yeah, totally. There wasn't much remixing you could do. You know? Yeah, the mixing process becomes kind of. I mean, there's creative things you can do to help yeah. change it a little yeah. or whatever, but it's like your hands are tied. Yeah, on certain. Yeah, tracks. <laughs> and also, I was because I didn't have much money. I was working super fast. Yeah, um, and I was had a full time job, and I would work on vacations and weekends yeah. and stuff. And <laughs> so, you know, I was cranking it out. You know? Were the records selling? Yeah, they were selling. Yeah. I mean, they were selling enough to pay for the next record. and yeah. Peel was playing them, and they were starting to get reviews. But I was also, um, I was for those first records. I was kind of anti the idea of presenting myself as the front person of fetus, right. and so I started all this mythology around it, which was kind of <laughs> semi informed by the residents, but also so I could Great go, example. yeah, so I better could also go to the enemy or whatever and say, "Here's my single. I'm from Self Immolation Records, and this is <laughs> this is this band from you know, it's a seven piece from." San Francisco or something like that, you know. And so this mythology, I, I discovered, you know, from the first single that if you write a press release and send it to the music papers, they're, they're going to print it verbatim. So right. I instantly, you know, I had this mythology thing. Yeah. Did you keep changing the kept, story behind it? Or? I did, yeah. 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 At first it was um, Fetus Under Glass was two Brazilian statistics collectors and their pen pal from Athens, Georgia. And then those guys had a fight and then one of them formed you've got fetus on your breath which was a seven piece from san francisco and then no. i had the names of all of the people in you've got fetus on your breath one of whom was clint ruin and oh then, that's right and then clint ruin popped up later 
And then there was Frank Wants, and I used that name a little bit right. and stuff. But that I got tired of doing, and I, it was yeah. just too, too hard to keep up after a couple of years. And so <laughs> I came clean. Exposed yourself? Yeah, I did. I exposed myself, yeah. yeah. Did you start performing at all along the way? I didn't perform live until... Um, I think the first time... Well, yeah, as fetus, the first time I performed live was when we did this thing in the, the Immaculate Consumptive, which is actually what brought me to New York. Yeah. And it was a thing that Lydia Lunch put together, um, which was myself, Lydia, Nick Cave, and Mark Almond. And we just wow. did um, three shows. Um, yeah. It was Halloween 83. We did two shows at Danceteria and one show at the 930 Club in D.C., mm-hmm. And that was like each of us had a few songs and then we had duets and, you know, one song where we all played together. Yeah. We had had some instruments and backing tracks and stuff. Yeah. So when I came here to do that, that's then I stayed in New York. It was like the opposite of London at that point. (laughs) What was it that that attracted you to New York at that point? Well, I'd been living in London, which was for five years. New York at that time was very East Village centric. Um, And there were people that probably never went south of Houston or north of 14th Street. That's where you stayed. That's where everything was. And also it was a 24-hour city. You could walk everywhere. Yeah. You know, the bars were open till 4, you know. Quite unlike London, especially. Yeah, well, London was sprawling. Yeah, yeah. The tubes stopped at midnight. You know, the bars closed at 11. Yeah. It was so different, you know. So I fell in love with it, and I said I didn't go back. Um, I eventually went back, and I was – because I was – with this label, Some Bizarre, at the time, and right. I was going back and forth recording. Right. Um, but after a while, you know, I had an apartment with Lydia here for, uh, in 84 on 12th Street. And yeah. That was the first apartment that I had here. But, um, you know, before that, I was staying with a bunch of people. And, yeah. But, um, yeah, I got involved with Some Bizarre in about 83, and that's when I graduated to 24 track. Right. And that was, you know, then I was a kid in the candy store. You were going to studios that had those instead of 8-track? Yeah. yeah. It was just, it was like, it was like, <laughs> it was like, um, yeah, it was like <laughs> having a cool breeze on your face and like, you know, the vistas opened up and there was I mean, so much more I could do. You'd you had know. to plan ahead so much before that you'd sort of constrict you couldn't change the ideas later very easily. Yeah. You know, because you couldn't make the same layers if you were on the eight yeah. track. So did that open up sort of a way of like to build layers and still have room to keep building it did, layers? It, it did for first day or two <laughs> until, <laughs> until I filled up every track of the 24 track. I've been on those sessions. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, no, it was so much better, and it, yeah. it meant that I could have a more expansive sound and yeah. it changed. I mean, there's tangible difference in the sound yeah. for the from those records on and the first record i did on 24 track was the album hole mm-hmm. and um and also i had a bigger budget and so i could you know spend more time on things you know yeah. like, whereas i might you know i well this one song i'll meet you in poland baby on that album i spent five days just you know constructing the mm-hmm. backing track out of i mean there's no samples on that album either was pre-sampling technology right. but um um what was great that they had there was an ams um 
delay which had a lock-in on it mm -hmm. and so you could put in a snare sound and trigger it and right um and so you could trigger and you know trigger sounds right and so i used the hell out of that you know right and, which sounds like it, it technically kind of is a sample but it's yeah harder to uh it's a lot of work <laughs> yeah 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 well there was other sort of sampling you know pre-samp proto-sampling yeah. things like it wasn't a a time machine but it was a thing like that you know right right um yeah. so there were there were, there, there were delays with lock-ins which i yeah. would tweak you know and yeah and um so put in a vocal and then tweak it and then like you know keep it you know to keep it in time with a click track and right and you know construct things like that and yeah. so it was proto sampling stuff yeah you know? um but that was this yeah that was a great liberation to do that stuff how much like time would you spend like say before an album session or something like just kind of trying to understand any new technology that had come out or things you could utilize um, or did you wait till you get in the studio and then just kind of ask questions and jump at yeah it? i would sort of do that and yeah. and i didn't know that um i i mean i would read up about things and i would hear about you know when when sampling was introduced I, yeah you know, i was as soon as that happened and i heard um that those things the samplers were available i rented one and you yeah know, it was, um, you couldn't buy one hardly unless you were peter gabriel yeah yeah <laughs> you couldn't um but um i you know still for an album like whole i was you know i i was you know i had so many ideas yeah and i it was because i can't I, I didn't know how to do things but i knew what i wanted to do but i would think of systems how to do them and so i would go in and i'd say i want to do this we have to um create like 18 tape loops of my voice mm -hmm. and we have to do you know and i'm gonna i mean that you know that album had a bunch of stuff where i'm looping my voice but playing the um the pitch speed on oh, the yeah. tape machine and like you know making <laughs> and right. like making tracks like that and then again like using the the mixing desk to you know create parts and yeah know, i'd have like you know have like notes and so i could make chords on the mixer you know and oh, then, right right and then bounce that across and then that would be the sort of the backbone of the composition and then i'd right. start overdubbing on that and um that stuff took a lot of time i was just gonna say yeah <laughs> it has to there's yeah. just no way around it yeah so things yeah. like that and um yeah and then i would get in and then the engineer would say well you know we can do that with you know we could do this we have this ams and you know right um and i rented a mellotron and you oh, know, fun. things like that um, yeah then i heard about um sampling technology and it was kind of what i'd been doing all along but it was a way to organize it you know yeah um but sampling Sampling times were still very short. Yeah, the um, bandwidth wasn't very good, so you'd have to record things at half speed. And right, and um, um, I think the first thing I maybe got was an emulator. Right. Uh, I didn't get one myself, but I rented an emulator. And yeah, I was using that on. I think maybe the the sessions I did for with Coil. I was I produced. Oh, nice Coil. Yeah, we we had some emulator on that and um and then the next album after after hole was nail and i did a ton of that on the fairlight right um so i rented a studio with a fairlight and did tons of programming on the fairlight we were working with this guy warren livesey mm -hmm. and um so that's when there's a lot of you know 
orchestral stuff. Yeah. Did you ever bring other people in to, to play On the fetus stuff, instruments? there was never anyone else on the fetus stuff up wow. until 95 on the album I did on Sony, and then I had some other people play yeah. on that. But all of the fetus stuff up until then didn't have anyone else on it. Was it just had, to still stay out of the democracy and yeah, yeah. get your focus across? I thought it would it would it would it would um, dilute the purity of it if I did that. Even though I, you know, it took me forever to play some of the things. Um, <laughs> I didn't want to dilute that purity because yeah. that's what fetus was. Yeah, and then I relaxed that. In, you know, yeah, a little bit. Later. How do you feel about that? Was that transition interesting to have people come in and play parts? And, oh yeah, it was. You know. it opened up. A lot, you know, yeah. but um, yeah, I mean, I probably could have done that earlier, um, <laughs> but I didn't. And I save yourself other, a couple hours. <laughs> yeah, but I didn't, you know. So for whatever reason, I didn't. And yeah. it's fine, you know. And then a lot of the stuff I do now, I just I play everything on, but I bring in people when I need to. Yeah, you know? I figure. Yeah, I, it, there still was a mythology. I know that you'd made up the. The, the, the sort of fake resonance things mm-hmm. you know earlier but there still was like i mean yeah, i remember picking up uh forced exposure or mm-hmm. magazines like that you'd remember i'm sure and and being like this guy sounds intense <laughs> you know or you know if there was an interview with you that it wouldn't sound it wouldn't be uh you know you weren't talking about picking daisies i guess or no. something no you know were, were there still like was there an image you were cultivating for who the fetus was no, with that? Or really, was it just an extension really, of you yeah, completely? Yeah, it was just an extension of me. I mean, yeah. I, mean I was pretty full on, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and full of piss and vinegar. Yeah. Know? I mean, like when I first met you, I was like almost a little nervous. Like at the trade show or mm-hmm. something. I'm like, mm-hmm. this guy can be intense. Mm. Like, what's, what are we going to have? And then you're like just chatting away and being nice. I'm yeah. like, okay, that's good. Whew. Yeah, well, I would hope that I evolve, you know, if we all evolve over our lives, you know. We try, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. I mean, I don't mean it in, like, a weird way. Like, you know, I think you're going to be, like, no, who would be exactly the same person they were when they were in their 20s yeah, yeah. or such anyway. Yeah. But it's just funny to me, like, those records did have an aura and they make an impression, yeah. you know. Yeah, oh, they're intense. Yeah. But, you know, I think I still make intense records but they're intense in a different way were there any records you heard that kind of gave you insight as to the direction that the fetus project took i not consciously with fetus because i wanted to come at it you know with a sort of certain purity to it and but i mean i couldn't help but i mean i'm still like a whale that devours plankton and that plankton is music, you know? Yeah. And I just take in so much stuff and you can't help but, but exude some of what you're taking right, in. Right, yeah. Um, and so it's informed by, you know, thousands of years of listening to <laughs> listening to music. Feels like. Yeah. Um, and I think that the same was true um, when I started making music. And it's weird because I think that, like, if you listen to music in the first couple of years of what I was doing, I can look back and I can see strands of what's happening there and it's colliding there. And that's because I was 
you know, one, you know, what, a big revelation for me was discovering like Steve Reich and his um, early tape experiments, mm -hmm. and like it's going to rain and oh, um, come out and things like that. And I used to listen to that stuff over and over. And those like, are so cool. Yeah, and it blew blew me yeah. away. And then so I would, and then I his later phasing experiments, mm -hmm. and then Philip Glass and and. That stuff, I can hear that sort of repetitive thing going yeah. on, and and also the you know total lifts of of you know the, some of the ideas of Steve Reich, but but also you know I then around that time I was also reading you know John Cage and and, and Stockhausen's ideas, mm -hmm. and they somehow you know like I would read about Cage like mapping you know a score to you know this a celestial map of, of the sky or something this, you know <laughs> yeah. using random stuff like that right, like, right. that's interesting how do i you know and i'd apply that somehow but it would also be there'd be a bit of james brown in there and then there'd be a bit of you know um yeah sort of and gristle or there'd be a bit of 10 cc in there or something or whatever right. you know i mean when Still. i look back on that stuff because yeah. i think a lot of the music that was bleeding over and what i was trying to you know, what I responded to with a lot of the music that I listened to when I was a kid growing up, when I was listening to say, you know, you'd listen to say Alice Cooper or, or um, Sensational Alex Harvey Band, who were like big favorites of mine when I was a yeah. kid. Um, they would do tracks like, they would have their rock band track, but then all of a sudden they break, you know, there'd be a big band in there or something. Yeah. Or like, you know, there'd be, you know, a string arrangement or, you know, but it would like turn on a dime and it would be like that for, you know, 12 bars and then it would be back out. And I always liked that sort of, you know. Contrast. Yeah, that contrast and that kind of um, schizophrenic yeah. kind of arrangement like of ideas and and like i said i mentioned 10 cc but like very heavily produced and yeah and using studio technology and and i did. and i said this to someone recently though but but you know my earliest musical me memories are of um you know warner brothers cartoons <laughs> and the way that 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 first of all that was my introduction to classical music but the way that <laughs> stuff is cut up it's crazy uh, yeah it's just like yeah. you know you know right that type of thing i mean that i think that sort of um there's elements of that in my early music and probably in yeah. my music now you know? but it's i mean i would say relating to what i was trying to express earlier it's a, a destabilizing of the listener so that you can mm -hmm. keep them on edge yeah even if the music's not abrasive it's if it's shifting so fast or as contrast, it kind of yeah, it's disorienting. You know, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you can do that with keys as well. I mean, like, yeah. you know, um, um, dissonance and yeah, and a lot of other stuff. I mean, it must be a huge gulf of difference between like a fetus record and a soundtrack because you're, of of where you put your own creativity and your expression and and ego. Yeah, well, I I had I, you know, before. Uh, I'd done some scoring before Venture Brothers came along, yeah. but not the the volume of scoring <laughs> that I've done now. You know? Yeah. And the thing is, you know, scoring is like doing a commission. You know, you have 
guidelines you know like if you if you're commissioned to do a string quartet you know you've got four instruments you know right and they, they sort of say well how long do you want it to be you know and it's yeah. 10 <laughs> minutes or it's 20 minutes you have these guidelines right. um scoring is like a commission too but it's, it's um once i've made my notes i know that i've got to do a cue that starts at yeah. one minute six and it goes until two minutes 32 and i know it's got to be this emotion and mm -hmm. it's got to have this break here and that break there and it's going to change tempo here and then go so i've got like this this template of yeah. what needs to be done when i when i come to do my own projects like fetus or zordox or whatever i usually have that template in my head anyway mm -hmm. i mean and i don't sit around on an instrument coming up with ideas i usually have the idea in my head and then i go okay how do i get this out you know like melodically or yeah, melodically or conceptually you know tempo and yeah. um the type of yeah if it's going to be aggressive it's going to be dark it's going to be or whatever if it's mm -hmm. what it's going to be you know or it's it's not going to be those things yeah. and then i'll then i'll start i'll put a skeleton down i'll get the yeah. template and um so i guess that I always have sort of a guideline, but, but um, yeah, you know, because music is problem solving, and <laughs> and so you yeah. know, it's it's problem solving by itself. It's like how do I get from A to B? How do I get from this troubled head onto <laughs> tape? You know, so there's some that thing's coming. This thing's coming out of the speakers, you right? Know? And then with with scoring, it's the same type of thing. You know, it's like how do I you know, um, elevate the material, make it exciting, you right. know, make it um, so I'm proud of it and put, you know, either get out of the way of the story or get out of the way of the dialogue, but still be there or, you know, or yeah. propel this. But how much sound design is there going to be? What am I going to clash with? You know, yeah. all sorts of, there's all sorts of things to think about. And um, what instruments are going to be pushing this thing and, you know, um, so that it's problem solving, you know, True. how, and how, and sometimes if you're scoring a scene that, you know, is four minutes long, um, you have to do a lot of weaving. And, yeah. And how do you keep it from being monotonous at times too? Yeah. You know, cause yeah. You, you can't just put one thing. Or, no, I never do. Generally. That. Yeah. 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 Or <laughs> yeah. sometimes some people do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Those um, other people do. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, um, but yeah, so it's it's problem solving. Thank yeah. you so much, no, thank man. You so this much. has been really fun. Yeah, I mean, Thanks for listening. Find us online at tapeop.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time. Stop.